I don't have to tell you that our culture has experienced a radical and rapid change with attitudes towards marriage, especially in the last 10 years. Uh, I don't know if it's been the, the fastest change ever. I'm sure there was like some empire that wiped out another culture and like immediately changed the view of marriage like instantaneously or something. But, um, but maybe in general, historically, it's been unprecedented that, that a culture would change so quickly their views on marriage. We've had politicians redefine marriage for us. Thanks, but no thanks, right? Um, we've seen that happen. But beyond that issue, uh, which that's really not what we're going to talk about this morning, we've seen in our culture a, a radical decline in the view that marriage is necessary is morally good and helpful, that it's like a good thing that you should pursue. In 2022, there was a Gallup poll that found that 76, 76% of adult respondents said that uh, cohabitation, that's two adults living together, sleeping together, is morally acceptable. 76% of Americans uh, believe that in 2022. Now, the crazy thing is that just 10 years before that, that number was like 15% lower, and 20 years before that, it was 20% lower. So take what you want from a poll, but the fact is that people just don't think marriage is necessary to live with someone else. Of course, we don't have to take the poll's word for it. We can look at entertainment. We can look at uh, American media. So you think about uh, media that's produced in the United States, um, you know, I hate to say back in the day, but back in the 50s, before there was electricity, you know, movies were great. (laughs) Yeah, you had a different attitude reflected in how marriage was presented, even on sitcoms, for example, or in movies. Uh, of course, you fast forward to today, and marriage is an optional add-on, right? And often, uh, you know, it, it comes out a little sideways, even in how it's presented in media. So you can just see in media that there's been a dramatic change in our attitude towards marriage. Then if, if we move beyond that, just think, okay, so we live in a culture, let's just say it, we live in a culture that has rethought marriage significantly in the last 10 to 15 years. Okay. Beyond that, we also live in a culture that's rethought divorce in that time frame. And maybe it's been going on longer than that, but we live in a day and age now where divorce for any reason is acceptable, viewed as morally acceptable. That same Gallup poll, 81% would say divorce for any reason is acceptable. And so we live in a culture where marriage is, it's optional. And you know what? You could try it. And if it doesn't work out, you just bail. It's disposable. Not surprisingly, marriage rates have continued to decline. Fewer couples are getting married. And in the midst of this world that we're living in, uh, we just have to acknowledge that the fact that we live in this culture means that culture will influence us. So our views, our assumptions about marriage are influenced by the the culture around us. Even so, we need to acknowledge at the outset that God calls us to a higher view of marriage than our culture has. God calls us to a higher view of marriage, which means if we're going to adopt a biblical, God-honoring, Christ-glorifying view of marriage, we will be in conflict with our neighbors on that issue. We have to just accept that reality. Okay, that, that the world is going to say we go this way, and Jesus today is going to say very clearly we go this way. Okay, and you just have to decide. 
You have to decide right at the outset here. You have to decide, is Jesus Lord of my view of marriage? Because it's not, there's not like a translation difficulty. It's not like, oh, it's really confusing what Jesus says. He says it crystal clear, black and white. He says, this is what God has called us to in marriage. And so we just have to ask, how will we respond then to his word? And then how will we relate to those around us who don't share this view? Those that, those that don't accept Jesus's teaching, okay, they are not our enemies, right? We are called to love them and care for them. At the same time, we have to recognize that on many days, we struggle to accept Jesus' teaching. So it's not like it's not a problem for us. It is a problem for us. I think anytime we talk about marriage and divorce, we have to acknowledge that we live in a world broken by sin. And so sadly, in marriage, many have experienced hurt and pain. And maybe you're here this morning, and you're experiencing hurt and pain in your marriage. It's not going well. Sadly, living in a broken world, we know that many have experienced the hurt of divorce, and they're living with the consequential difficulties of divorce. It's not easy. There's a lot of ongoing struggle and turmoil that results from it. In light of that reality, it's important also just to note, as Jesus teaches us on marriage and divorce this morning, that his grace abounds even in the hardest trials. So we're not going to pretend the hurt's not there. We're not going to just, uh, you know, close our eyes to it, ignore it. What we want to do is we want to acknowledge the hardship and the difficulty of it, but we want to remember that God's grace abounds. And when God calls us to a particular way of life, he equips us to live that way. His grace also may lead us to confession of sin and repentance, where we actually heed his word and we need to say, I have sinned, I have done wrong in this particular area. So I know it's a difficult topic for us because it's so practical, but praise Jesus, he speaks right to the issue. And so this morning, let's humble ourselves and let's listen to what Jesus says about the issues of marriage and divorce here in Matthew chapter 5, okay? So we're getting back into it in verse 31. Remember that this is in Matthew 5 to 7, it's Jesus explaining what kingdom citizens are like. Okay, what are Christians like? What are his disciples like? What is true spirituality like? He's correcting faulty thinking on that, especially distortions of the Old Testament law. You thought the problem was murder. The problem was anger. You thought the problem was adultery. The problem is lust, right? So he's gone through and he's clarifying the law of God for us. And again, saying this is what true kingdom citizens are like. And so he's, he's done a few examples now in, in the law. And now in verse 31, he comes to a particular law about divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24. But let's look at verse 31, and then we'll talk about the background here. Jesus goes on. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife must give her a written notice of divorce. Now, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy chapter, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1 here. Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4 is the one place in the law where it describes essentially uh, the, the details of divorce for ancient Israel, okay? It talks about how divorce, it basically just assumes that sometimes divorce will happen, okay? It doesn't really go into details there about the specifics about what would be uh, biblical grounds for divorce in Deuteronomy 24. And so there was a lot of debate in Jewish uh, theology and, and practical Jewish theology about 
under what circumstances could you actually divorce? And it was acceptable in the sight of God. So rabbis were all over the map on this. And in the first century, there were two very popular, influential rabbis, and they had different views on what grounds you could divorce someone, okay? By the way, in the first century, only the husband could divorce the wife, right? So now there, there were, there were a, a few loopholes that were created to allow women to basically kind of uh, call the man to divorce her. But in general, it was the husband's, you know, right and responsibility to do that. All that to say, the one rabbi who, uh, who was very popular and influential in the first century, his name was Shammai, and his view was the conservative view. And he said that divorce was really only allowable in, in instances of unchastity, was what he called it. So basically, this would be like adultery or serious sexual sin or even like just something scandalous. So, for example, he gave an example of if your wife went out in public and she was dressed in a scandalous way and kind of brought shame on you or the family, then you, that would be unchastity and that would be reason to divorce her. But basically, that, those are the only instances. So he was, he was kind of the more conservative view. Jesus knew of that view that was very prominent in, in the culture, okay? So the, the more conservative group would be like, no, but only in cases of unchastity. But the fact was, based on how Shammai de- defined unchastity, you could, you could sneak a lot of ex- excuses in there, right? So that was the more conservative view. The less conservative view was taught by Rabbi Hillel, okay? Also a very famous and popular rabbi in the first century. His view was you could divorce your wife for any reason up to and including if she burnt your toast. That was, and I think that's literally what he said. So basically, it was gave, you know, it was just, if you found any displeasure in your wife whatsoever, um, you know, that's it. You, you have a green light for divorce, okay? Um, and uh, Lindsay's, she's not in here because she's still dealing with a little bit of a cough, but she is in the building. So she's monitoring the sermon to make sure that everything I say <laughs> is, is accurate. I just want to make sure to clarify that as we walk through it. So that's, that's the cultural view. So Jesus is a rabbi. He's teaching the word of God, right? He's more than just a rabbi, but he certainly is a rabbi. So as he's teaching the word of God, the issue of marriage is going to come up. And inevitably, somebody's going to ask Jesus, and they'll ask him again, by the way, in Matthew 19, where are you on this, Jesus? Are you with Hillel? Are you with Shammai? What's, what's the deal? Jesus, actually, in this moment, he actually says, and in the beginning, the beginning of verse 22, it starts with, but, but I say to you, he actually says, these guys, they're, they're, they don't get it right. He has even a higher standard, a different standard. So he's going to correct the faulty thinking. What's the faulty thinking? Well, the faulty thinking is that certainly in Hillel's view, and even in Shammai's view to a point, uh, selfishness was driving the decision-making, right? Particularly in the husband. The husband would basically say, I can find a way to end this covenant relationship because I want something different. Because it's too hard, Right? Because I like another woman better. Whatever. And here's the reality. It was a problem then in the first century, and it's a problem today. When we make marriage all about us, when marriage is about us, when we're the center of it, right, we will struggle. When marriage is about us, when you put yourself in the center of it, if it's all about you, we will struggle. This idea of catering to easy divorce or divorces of convenience was not new in the first century either. In the Old Testament, the prophet Malachi dealt with this. In Malachi 2, 16, he talks about, actually, I'll read it for you. But he's, he's dealing with this problem of um, 
Jewish men who are disposing of their older wives to, to marry younger wives. And this is what the prophet says in Malachi 2, uh, 16, well, 15 and 16. So basically, he doesn't want anyone to act treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. There may be a spiritual analogy in there as well, but practically speaking, God makes it clear to the prophet Malachi that you're not just to be disposing wives. Okay? Divorces of convenience do not honor God. They are unjust. They are wrong. And so that teaching of the Old Testament actually follows through here into the New Testament. But just thinking about it from our cultural standpoint, because of sin, marriage is going to require perseverance. It's going to require hardship. So this applies to you, whether you're married right now, whether you're not married right now and you want to get married, whether you're married right now and wish you weren't married, whether you are widowed and you're after the battle here, all of that, in any circumstance, we're going to see opportunities to apply this text. But let's just acknowledge that because of sin, marriage requires perseverance. If you are looking for a reason to end your marriage, you will find one. Here are many that are common today and it's not, they're not new to our culture. Uh, I've fallen out of love. Or I no longer find my spouse attractive. Okay? That's one very common reason people would say, uh, I should end this marriage. Because I don't find them attractive. Um, some of us are getting to the age where attractiveness just isn't an option anymore. Right? It's just like, it's off the table. Okay? I mean, that's, that's a fact. I'm not going to name names, but you know who you are. So... <laughs> I, you know, we chuckle about it, but th there is that temptation. I've fallen out of love. Of course, I'm not sure you really fall into love anyway. That's probably a faulty cultural idea about the nature of love. But nonetheless, I don't find my spouse attractive. I should end the marriage. He or she doesn't make me happy anymore. I should end the marriage. They've let me down. This isn't what I expected. I should end the marriage. I found someone better. Should end the marriage. It's not financially advantageous anymore. Should end the marriage. He or she, they haven't treated me right. They haven't treated me right, so I should end the marriage. Well, it's better for the kids if we end the marriage. Here's the reality if we are at the center of our marriage, if our marriage is all about me, it's all about self, when there's significant turbulence, we will look for a way out. If it's all about you, if you're the center of it and things get hard and difficult, you will, because of sin, you will look for a way out of that relationship. In some senses, if that's your expectation going into marriage, <clears throat> for example, I'm getting married to fulfill my needs and make me happy. If that's what you're looking for, right, then you're setting yourself up for failure as you pursue marriage. <clears throat> because of sin, there's no way marriage can fulfill you. There's no way your spouse can carry that burden of meeting all your hopes and dreams, right? And especially if you think about demands or expectations, right? We set ourselves up for failure. Now, in our culture, so marriage is hard, right? It's hard because of sin, and, and it's really challenging. So it's easy to see, yeah, there would be a temptation to end it. What's happened in our culture, the twist in our current situation that wasn't going on in the first century, was that couples now, they're just not getting married. Like, statistically, that's the new thing. We're just going to live together and associate as if we are married 
sleep together, you know, all that, but we're, but we're not going to get married. We're not going to actually make a legal, formal, or spiritual commitment to each other. So that way, we don't have to go through all the drama. We can just cut ties whenever we want to, right? That's, that's the, the prevailing, or I guess the increasingly popular idea today. But here's the deal. In that equation, once again, you're at the center of it. It's about you protecting yourself. And can I just encourage you this morning that God calls us to so much more. That the secret to actually thriving in marriage is to get yourself out of the center. God calls us to something higher. And as Jesus says, you've heard it said in Deuteronomy 24, Jesus is setting them up to counter their practice of allowing for divorces of convenience. So he says, listen, this is not going to work. Hillel's version, surely, and even Shammai's version, it's too loose. There's not, it doesn't actually get to the heart of the issue. In Matthew 19, he'll say, the reason why Deuteronomy 24 is in there is because of your stubborn, hard hearts. That's why, that's why God even put that in Deuteronomy 24, because he knew because of sin that some marriages would end, and so he had to give you some kind of process for it. But he says, really, that, that's not ideal. It's not what he's called us to. So there's a setup here. And as we get to Jesus' words on the issue, I just want to encourage you that there may be an opportunity for you to confess sin this morning, specifically in making yourself the center of your view on marriage. This could be true whether you're married or not, where it's all about you. And if you've made it all about you, you've gotten it wrong. And so there's an opportunity to maybe receive the word of the Lord this morning and say, God, I have sinned. I have made myself the center of this marriage. or I've made myself the center of my pursuit of marriage. Forgive me. And help me to get you in the center of my marriage. Jesus calls us to a better way. Watch verse 32. Let's see how he explains it. So he's reviewed Deuteronomy 24. Then in verse 32, he says, But I tell you, upgrade, right? Clarification. But I tell you, everyone who divorces his wife, except in a case of sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, what's going on here? Jesus is saying Hillel and Shammai both get it wrong. The fact is, except for in cases of uh, grievous sexual immorality, which here is synonymous with adultery, okay, except in those cases, if you're married to someone, you're married to them. And he's saying basically, even if you, you socially and legally in the eyes of culture get a certificate of divorce, in the eyes of God, you're still married to that person. So let's say you took Hillel's very relaxed view and your wife, heaven forbid, burns your toast, right? Or she ages a little bit and you're like, okay, I'm going to upgrade and get the new model, whatever it is, right? So you give her a certificate of divorce and you get divorced and it's legal. It's legal in society. It's legal in, in the first century in Israel. It would have been legal. And then you go and you marry another woman. Jesus says, yeah, the society may have accepted that certificate of divorce, but God didn't. And God says, you're committing adultery because you're being unfaithful to the one that you married. So that's the principle, right? There's a whole different way of thinking about it. What Jesus does here is he argues that actually kingdom citizens, kingdom citizens hold a high view of marriage. Kingdom citizens hold a high view of marriage. He upgrades the view. He says, you're reading Deuteronomy 24 wrong. If you're looking for the loophole and you're looking for the way out, the fact is, 
whatever culture says, whatever society says, if you're married, and except in those most extreme cases, again, the cases of adultery where the, the bond is broken and cannot be repaired, so except for in those cases, stay married because you're married in the sight of God. That's radical. It's different than they were being taught in the first century. And it is so different from our cultural assumption today. Kingdom citizens, Christians, followers of Jesus hold a high view of marriage. Now, let me unpack a couple of uh, truths that Jesus reveals in verse 32. The first is this. His argument assumes that God determines the validity of marriage, not society. It's really important. That's like the basis of Jesus's argument. So he's basically saying, I don't care what the society says. If, if this hasn't been, the covenant hasn't been broken because of adultery, God says you're still married. That means God's the one who determines whether or not a marriage is still in force, right? He determines the validity of a marriage, which guess what? It puts him right in the middle of marriage, doesn't it? Now all of a sudden we're rethinking marriage according to God's terms. What has God called us to in marriage? More on that in a moment, but just understand that Jesus' argument assumes that God determines the validity of a marriage, okay? Second, Jesus' argument assumes that marriage is for life. His, his, second, his argument secondly assumes that marriage is for life. Now listen, Jesus knows about the ups and downs of living in a broken world. He is not ignorant to the fact that being married to another sinner is difficult. Right? He has, he has uh, as the creator of this universe, right? He has unique insight into our struggle. Side note, he knows it better than we do, right? And Jesus argues here that you, marriages are not disposable. Marriage is for life. This is where they come up with that whole until death do us part line, Right? It comes from this idea that marriage is for life. So from, from the perspective of Jesus, if we let Jesus guide us in our thinking about marriage, there's no get out of marriage card. It's just like, oh, here's a, here's a quick pass. And even in cases of adultery, right, while divorce is permitted in those cases from a biblical perspective, it's not necessarily that we have to pursue divorce. And by God's grace, I've been involved with some couples where they've struggled and had adultery in their marriage, and they have been able to see restoration happen. And I just put that out there to say, you don't have to end the marriage. Now, it, it may need to end, and sometimes that is the reality. But certainly it's different from the view of our culture. So Christian marriage is for life. Third, Christian marriage is different. It's got to be God-centered. This takes faith to work through the trials that we'll face in the midst of marriage. So think about it this way. Pardon me for just a second. Think about it this way. The, the way this is going to work is by confidence in Jesus. So you get married to somebody, and let's be honest, when you're engaged, and I know there are some engaged couples in the room, your fiance is amazing. Amen? <laughs> they're beautiful. They're handsome. They're smart. They're awesome. Yeah, probably. They're, they're like that. That's great. And when, if, we do, if we do the wedding, if one of the pastors here does the wedding, we will drag you through premarital counseling where we try to convince you they're not. <laughs> like, no, they're not. So the books that we'll use, when sinners say I do, right? 
Well, let's, let's open our eyes here. Let's see what, we're, see what we're doing. You need Carfax on your, on your fiancé, right? You need to know what, you, what are you getting into. So let's say you get married. But Christian marriage is different. So Christian marriage, we don't say, okay, uh, we're, I'm getting married to make me happy, and I'm the center of it. As long as she or he makes me happy, then I'll stay in the fight, right? No, no, no. Christian marriage is different. We say, I'm going to pursue marriage for the glory of God. God's going to be at the center of my marriage. And I know there are going to be hard days when my spouse fails me. I know there are going to be hard days when, when it's so difficult and I'm hurt by the one that I love the most. That the one closest to me is the one who actually causes me pain. But I'm going to trust the Lord and I'm going to persevere. It's interesting. In Matthew 19, Jesus addresses marriage again. And he talks about the problem being our hardness of heart. And when we put God at the center of our marriage, we soften our hearts towards the Lord and towards each other. In Ephesians 5, the Apostle Paul uses marriage as a picture of the gospel. And he says, for example, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. When God's at the center of a marriage, what happens is husbands sacrificially love their wives. And when they do so, they put on display the love of Jesus for his church, which is a beautiful thing. But the husband's not at the center of that equation. And the wife isn't at the center of that equation. God's at the center of that equation. When he says, wives, submit to your husbands, as to the Lord. It's not about the husband being at the center or the wife. It's about God being at the center. And it's about marriage being a beautiful picture of the fact that Jesus doesn't just teach us about marriage, but later in the book of Matthew, he'll go to the cross for our failures in marriage. And he rises from the dead so that we can be forgiven of our failures. This is not, Jesus is not advocating here for the white knuckle approach to marriage. Where you're just like, I'm just gonna, we're just gonna get through it. And we're just not gonna talk to each other for three more decades. And then we'll be, you know, like that kind of a thing. Like we're just gonna tough it out. That's not, that's not his view here. Yes, God determines the validity of marriage. Yes, marriage is for life. But when God is at the center of your marriage, that marriage is built with the bricks of sacrificial love, confession of sin, repentance, and forgiveness. A Christian marriage is a marriage that has an environment of grace. Grace. So often, I think this is actually where we really misfire in Christian marriage. Because maybe we, we think, oh, we're two Christians and we'll get married, but we never actually establish a Christian ethic in the marriage. In a Christian marriage, this sentence should be very common. I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? I've sinned against you by saying by doing, by not doing. I've sinned against you. Will you forgive me? And I would venture to guess that that is a rare sentence in all marriages because we struggle. So when Jesus calls us to this higher view of marriage, he's not saying just stick it out. He's saying, no, I actually call you to understand that God defines marriage, that marriage is for life. And when you put God at the center, it's a totally different ball game. And what we do is we, we can add to Jesus' teaching here the rest of what we read about in the New Testament. Specifically, those, those building blocks of sacrificial love, confession of sin, repentance, and forgiveness. If you're here this morning and you're married, I would just encourage you to consider, are there areas in your marriage where you need to confess sin to your spouse? It's risky, but it glorifies God to do it. And if your spouse confesses sin to you, 
I would encourage you not to add it to the record of wrongs that you may have tucked away in your heart, but instead, just as Paul calls us to in Ephesians 4.32, to forgive them just as God in Christ has forgiven you. Because if the blood of Jesus covers their sin in the sight of God, it should be good enough for us. That's how a Christian marriage can be an environment of grace. A Christian marriage is not a marriage where we don't fail each other. You show me a marriage where people say they're not failing each other, I'll show you two liars. We know that's not true. So the fact is, what is a Christian marriage? A Christian marriage is where God is at the center and where when we fail each other, we confess our sin and we offer forgiveness. Again, kingdom citizens hold a high view of marriage, which means divorce is not on the table. Okay, biblically speaking, divorce is allowable in two circumstances. One would be adultery. We learn here in Matthew 5 and again in Matthew 19. The second circumstance where divorce is allowable is talked about in 1 Corinthians 7. It's when you have two people who are married. One becomes a believer and the other person is like, I didn't sign up to be married to an unbeliever. And so the unbeliever says, I want out of the marriage. At that point, Paul says, let them go. They didn't, that's fair. They didn't sign up for it. And so we call that abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. If an unbeliever doesn't want to be married to a believer, then in, in 1 Corinthians 7, that is allowable. Those are, those are the two biblical instances. And even in those instances, I wouldn't say that divorce is necessarily recommended or it's like the, the best option because God is glorified by restoration. And even in 1 Corinthians 7, he's glorified by a believer being remaining married to an unbeliever and perhaps God using the believer to then be the vehicle of delivering the gospel to the unbeliever. So we don't know what God's going to do. But all that to say, divorce is not really on the table, except in those extreme cases where the covenant is broken beyond repair. And yes, that does happen from time to time. But the, but the problem that we have in our culture is that our culture is bought so much into this idea that marriage is disposable, and it's not an option, that the idea of a lifelong commitment based on faith in God to per- persevere through difficulty with another person is crazy talk. And that's why, even when we're doing marriage ceremonies, that's why we really focus on the covenant aspect. That as two sinners getting married, it's a covenant in the sight of God where we say, I commit to love you. And that's why we have vows. Even though they vary in how people word them, the whole point of the vows is, I'm acknowledging publicly that it's not always going to be easy. For richer, what was the other one? For, oh yeah, we don't like to talk about it, right? But I mean, that's the deal. In sickness and in health, right? I mean, the ups and the downs. And if the cultures keep saying to you, oh, just, just end it, just get out, just get out. And actually today, it's a twisted argument. It's uh, from psychologists. They'll tell you, oh, it's better for your mental health if you end your marriage. That's what they'll tell you. And they're wrong. They're flat out wrong. But they'll tell you it's better for your mental and spiritual health if you end that marriage. When Jesus literally says the opposite. He says, it is better for you to have a high view of marriage, to persevere, to sacrificially love that person, and to work on restoration, and to work on the relationship. That's what he calls us to. He says, that's better for you, actually, than just ending it. So kingdom citizens hold a high view of marriage. Now what? So I want to talk about it in, in terms of how this applies to a couple different uh, groups, right, that, that are represented um, here this morning. First of all, if you're here this morning and you are divorced, okay, I think there's an opportunity to just acknowledge that God's grace abounds even in the midst of a divorce. Perhaps in the process of your divorce, you were unwilling to confess sin to your ex. 
Maybe there's an opportunity for you to honor God, even if the marriage is not able to be restored, to honor God by confessing your sin. Confess it to God and maybe even confessing it to your ex, just acknowledging how you failed them. If your divorce was a divorce of convenience, meaning it wasn't because of adultery or abandonment by an unbelieving spouse, just remember that by faith in Jesus, you're forgiven, that you're washed clean in his sight. But if it was a divorce of convenience, maybe consider the possibility of reconciliation. In many cases, that's not possible, but sometimes it is. And that's a really, really tough mountain to climb. But God may be glorified by the reconciliation of a marriage that was previously broken for sinful reasons. Second, for those who are married and, I mean, I was going to say and struggling, but that's everybody who's married. So if you're married, I assume you're struggling. Okay, that's, that's where we are. And Lindsay knows I was going to say that, so... If you're married and you're struggling, um, confess your sin to God and to each other. I got to tell you, in so many cases, I've been involved in marriage counseling where the the victory comes when, again, we take ourselves out of the center, we put our guns down, and you just own your your sin. And what happens, it's, it's always this, but they, but they, but they. But they did, but they said, but they did, but they, and they did. I'm sure they did. I'm sure it was bad. What about you? Where have you failed? And when you're willing to humbly own your sin and confess that as sin to God and to your spouse, you are paving the way for forgiveness and grace to be the environment of that relationship. Confess your sin. If you're married, confess your sin to each other. Secondly, seek help. Okay. Every married couple needs help. You need a trusted brother or sister in Christ that you can talk to that can help you navigate the difficulties of marriage, okay? If you're married, you will struggle, so you're going to need that. There may be a day when you face a significant struggle and you need counseling, okay? Uh, You need counseling in the church. That is not a bad thing. That is a good thing. Counseling is, counseling is not like, oh, it's for really broken people. No, it's for broken people who are honest about wanting to get better and, and address those issues in their lives. And so by God's grace, he has gifted certain people in the church to help walk through that with you and process it with you. So get help. You're going to need help. So get help when you need it. And if you're married, take divorce off the table. It is not an op. If you're a Christian, have a high view of marriage. You're in it for life. That's it. Just take divorce off the table. It's not discussed. It's not an option. Okay, it's not pursued. Okay, we don't talk about it. It's it's not something that we're going to make as a plausible solution to our problems. Okay, I think probably that's the primary area of application that that Jesus is getting at in in regards to attitudes towards marriage. Thinking about those who are married, or if you want to be married, right, having that same attitude. Okay, the third group though, if you're not married but you want to be married. Possibly consider whether or not your view of marriage is self-centered and just try to own that and if confess it as sin to the Lord. I would say pursue contentment, right? Because as much as we've laughed a little bit about it this morning, uh, marriage is not going to solve your problems. It's not going to fix you, okay? It's not going to take away your struggles. So be content with where God has you at the moment and don't compromise. Don't compromise in your dating relationships, Don't pursue marriage with an unbeliever for sure. And certainly don't participate in sexual sin or other areas of sin uh, in the process of dating. So put the Lord first. He's honored by that and you'll be blessed by it. 
And also, maybe as just a side note, singleness is not a curse. It's a gifting, according to the Lord. You may be gifted a time of your life where you're single, and you have extra bandwidth to to pursue the Lord and to serve Him. So take that for what it is and run with it, right? It's not a curse. So just recognize that, that you know, marriage is not your, your Savior, right? Uh, fourth group of application. If you're here and you're widowed, okay? Encourage others in their marriages. Encourage young people to pursue marriage. And when you hear about marriages where there's struggling going on, especially if you have some kind of a relationship with, with that couple, Press in. Don't just hear about it. Do something about it. Because so often what we need to persevere by faith in our marriages is just somebody to put our arm around us and just talk us through an issue and and walk with us a little bit. And who better to do that than somebody that has already experienced that and they've already had the blessing of many years of marriage. When you hear of struggles, press in. For everyone, no matter who you are, Be aware that divorce leaves a trail of destruction behind it. This is why I think Jesus is so concerned to, again, elevate our attitude about marriage and and correct faulty thinking about divorce. Remember, kingdom citizens have a high view of marriage. Divorce destroys. It leaves carnage emotionally, financially, uh, in relationships. It causes pain, inconvenience, shame, hurt, and more. And so just be aware that, that that is what it does, which leads to then maybe a second calling is that if we have a high view of marriage, we also want to have a high degree of love for those who have experienced the trauma of marriage's ending, whether their marriage ended or their parents' marriage ended. Be sensitive to those who have experienced divorce, especially around holidays or major milestones. Reach out to those people. Let's just be aware and be caring and loving and show God's grace. God can use you to be a vehicle of grace to those who have experienced that, that hurt and that, that difficulty. At the end of the day, uh, I think in, in the church community, because kingdom citizens have a high view of marriage, we need to be encouraging Christian marriage. Uh, one of the other trends that we're experiencing is that if people choose to get married, they get married much later in life. Um, can I encourage you? Get married young. Get married young to a Christian. Like, it's a good thing. You should do that. Enjoy the adventure of life together. It's, it's a blessing. Do it with your eyes open. Yeah, make sure you do your counseling, right? Your premarital counseling. But get married young. It's a blessing. It's designed to be a blessing. Let's reclaim it and have a high view of marriage here in our church community. You know, when you read the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation... There's a beautiful vision that's given of the reunion of Jesus with his church. In that event, I don't know if you remember, the vision portrays it as the marriage feast of the Lamb. The bride, the church, is dressed up in a glorious dress that pictures the transformed lives of the saints. Marriage is a picture of something greater. And when marriage is held high in our hearts, it pictures God's gracious love for his church. So I think when marriages are functioning in a way that glorifies God, it's, it's awesome because it points to the greater marriage, the eternal permanent marriage that we'll experience with Jesus. But even when we struggle in marriage, it just reminds us that sin has broken this world and that we were made for something more. And can I just encourage you, that whether you're married or not, what you're looking for, you won't find in your marriage. 
you'll only find it in the marriage. The marriage of the church to Jesus. That's our eternal home. That's where we're headed. And so, yes, when we struggle, we look to the cross. We confess our sin knowing that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead. And even as our marriages are inherently imperfect, because we are at the moment, we already are participants in the perfect marriage. Because Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead. You'll never beat that love. And what's amazing is that that love equips us to move forward in marriage by his grace. There's so much more that we have to wrestle with on this issue, but let's just remember that as kingdom citizens, we must have a high view of marriage. Would you please pray with me? We'll ask for God to graciously work in our lives on this issue. Lord, we pause again this morning and we ask for your continued help. I know this topic touches every person here in one way or another. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to trust you and to believe what you've said. Lord, I I pray that you would help us to see the difference between a Christian view of marriage and the world's view of marriage. Lord, I especially pray that you would help us to reject the idea of divorces of convenience. Lord, help us to see that you are to be the center of marriage and that you define marriage and determine whether or not a marriage is still in force. And you have created marriage to be for life. Lord, help us to show each other grace as we fail. Lord, help us to lovingly care for those who have experienced the hurt of divorce. And Lord, we thank you that because of Jesus dying for our sins and rising from the dead, we have real hope for genuine transformation and change. Lord, I pray especially this morning for those who are having a tough time in their marriage. I pray that you would would foster in them a willingness to confess their sin to each other that you would break down perhaps the, the wall of, of self-protection and, and, Lord, enable them to ask for help. And, Lord, we pray that the help would be effective and that they would grow. And Lord, protect us from viewing marriage as our Savior. We thank you that we are looking forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb. We thank you that because of your death on our behalf, we, our sins are, are paid for. Lord, we're forgiven. So we ask now that you would help us to thrive as we experience marriage in this broken world. And we pray these things in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.